Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to again meditate on <clears throat> the 23rd Psalm. And as we did last week, if you've learned it in, in a different translation than the ESV, or, or if you have a Bible and want to turn there, let's recite it together, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thy heart with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the midst of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. We saw last week that the 23rd Psalm really is a psalm about the restoration of the soul. If we read between the lines, we can see that King David had neglected his soul. It is easy to do. John Ortberg says that the neglected soul doesn't go away. It goes awry. How goes it this morning with your soul? We saw last week that David nicknamed the Lord. He begins the psalm with God's covenant-making, promise-keeping name, the name God had given Moses, the Lord. And then he, based on his experience of God's presence, his power, or his promises, David names the Lord. He is my shepherd. And so the question last week was, what name have you been calling God? I argued that, that the human soul can't help but be naming God. Most of the names we have for God in the Scriptures are given actually by God's people when they experienced God, His presence, His power, or His promises. Nicknaming people based on their character is, is common, actually. I was a part of a threesome. We were the three amigos in high school, we, uh, best friends, inseparable, and we were called the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, it was pretty obvious who was who. Rick was clearly the good. Rick even as a teenager, he was chronically good. He was good. He was every mother's dream of a son. So Rick was the good. And then there was Paul, six foot three, tall, dark, and handsome, all-state soccer goalie. He, he couldn't be the ugly. <laughs> he had to be the bad, and I was the ugly. And so for years, years, 
I had that moniker, I'm the ugly, and I was okay with that. I, I was okay with that. And then literally decades after we first took up those nicknames, we were together, and I said, hey, the ugly reporting for duty. And they both looked at me puzzled. They said, you're not the ugly. I said, I'm not? They said, no. I said, well, Rick is obviously the good. And they said, obviously. And I said, Paul is too good looking to be the ugly, although I will say the decades and <laughs> Mother Nature and Father Time have taken a toll. <laughs> they said, no, no, Paul's the ugly. I said, why would he be the ugly? And Paul explained, he said, it's ironic. It's an ironic nickname to be the ugly. I said, what does that make me? And they said in unison, you're the bad. And I said, oh, you mean in an ironic sense? And they both said, no. <laughs> Some of you have wondered what Sally's nickname is. It's probably a good time to share it because keep in mind, I'm, I'm the bad. <laughs> I was a newlywed and um, uh, delighted to be married. Sally and I dated in college, worked in ministry together through local young life, and uh, when we got married, I, I nicknamed her Stink. And I said last week, had I known 37 years later I would be saying that publicly, I would have chosen a better name. But it's ironic. It's an ironic name. Sally has been on the human level the greatest source of blessing in my life and certainly in the lives of our family. And along with all the mothers, I honor my wife, the mother of four, four sons who um, delight in her and have been blessed on the human level by her more than anyone else. Nicknames. In, in Judges 6, God nicknames Gideon, and Gideon nicknames God. I hope as you're reading the Scriptures moving forward, you're going to look for these, these naming opportunities. They're, they're, they're all over. You may remember the context, Judges 6. The Midianites, uh, enemy of the Israelites, were at it again. They were, they were marauders. They would sweep into Israel, cause trouble, take things, and then they would steal out. And so, during one of these waves of the Midianite horde coming through Israel, Gideon hides. He's hiding in the wine press, and the angel of the Lord shows up, and he nicknames Gideon. What would you call Gideon if you saw him hiding in the wine press? The angel of the Lord said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's an ironic nickname, right? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon responds by really debating with the angel. If the Lord is with us, why is all this happening? And the angel says, the Lord is with you, and he's going to use you to win the victory. Gideon gathers 32,000 men. God says, that's too many. Eliminate 20,000. He has 12,000 men. God says, that's too many. He whittles it down to 300 because God says, 
I will not share my glory with another. If you think you do it in your own strength, if you think you won the victory, you're going to steal my glory. And so, at night, Gideon and his 300 men sweep down into the valley of Jezreel, and in the confusion, the Midianites attack one another, and God wins the victory. And in that chapter, God is given a new name. Jehovah Shalom, Gideon says. The Lord our peace. He experienced the character and the power and the promises of God. And in response, his soul named God. What is the soul? It's mentioned over 700 times in the Bible. If someone approached you and said, what is the soul, what would you say? Let me give you a couple key elements of what the soul is. Your soul is at the core of your being where you give and receive the blessing. Your soul is at the core of your being and it's where you give and receive the blessing. In Genesis 25, Isaac is tricked by his son Jacob. Jacob steals Esau's blessing. But here's how Jacob describes it. As he's, as, he, as he's an imposter, he's acting and smelling literally like Esau. He says to his father, eat this food that your soul may bless me. Your soul is that place where you bless. In Psalm 103, King David, who also wrote, the 23rd Psalm, breaks into worship. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The, your soul is at the center of your being, and it's that place where you bless and where you are blessed. In Matthew 12, 18, God the Father blesses his son. And God says this, Behold my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. Your soul is at the core of your being where you give and receive the blessing. Secondly, your soul is that place where you make vows or covenants. We are designed to live covenantally in committed relationships with God and with one another. In 2 Chronicles 15, 12, it describes God's people coming together, and it says this, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. In fact, the Scriptures teach God only deals with people soul to soul. Which is why when the, the Scriptures say the soul that sins shall die, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a dire warning 
that if your soul is dead, you are incapable of blessing or being blessed. You are incapable of making covenant vows and fulfilling them. Jeremiah 32, 38, listen to God as he speaks of his soul and his commitment to his people. Jeremiah 32, 38, they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. This is the gospel. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. So the 23rd Psalm is all about soul restoration. David's soul had gone astray. And I would argue that in weekly corporate worship, we renew our covenant vows. We bless and are blessed. We, we acknowledge how we have failed to fulfill our vows, and, and we experience soul restoration. Having been restored in the 23rd Psalm or having been restored in corporate worship, we then leave the meadow, we leave that retreat where we meet with the shepherd, and we follow the shepherd on paths of righteousness. And where do the paths of righteousness go? He restores my soul, David says. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He will not share his glory with another. The reason he's leading us on paths of righteousness is for his renown through our lives. He, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Where do the paths of righteousness lead? They lead into the valley. The 23rd Psalm is not a funeral text, though it is a wonderful funeral text. This is not a psalm about the end of your life, beloved. This is a psalm about your life. Paths of righteousness. Theologians describe righteousness in two ways. First of all, there's the passive righteousness, the imputed righteousness we receive by faith in Christ. We sang about it. Some of the, the lyrics were phenomenal in describing that in our confession, how we're in rags and yet we're, we're, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is the imputed righteousness. That is the passive righteousness that comes to us by faith. But there is a second and equally important righteousness, and this is what theologians call active righteousness. These are the good works that we're to walk in, the good works, Ephesians 2.10, that he prepared in advance for us to do. So having restored our souls through corporate worship, we, he then says, now follow me on paths of righteousness. One of, the, one of the places that the paths of righteousness lead here is over into the, the nursery. I was talking to the Next Generation team this last week. I said, what needs do you have? I said, we need 24 men, women, mature teens to, to serve once uh, every six weeks in, in the nursery. See, the, the, the good works we walk in, one of those paths go through 
goes through the next-gen area. Listen to the path of righteousness Job walked. In Job 29, he describes this active righteousness. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. This is my favorite line. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. This is the people of God walking the paths of righteousness, standing up against evil, pointing out injustice, shielding the vulnerable. According to Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, the righteous person puts himself in harm's way. The righteous person uses some of his own resources for the sake of others, while the unrighteous person hoards, hoards. That's a dead soul person. What does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and to lose his soul. The path of righteousness. But it gets even better than that because of John 7. These paths of righteousness, envision it, soul restoration, and then the church, the bride of Christ. Last week it was the soul and its shepherd. Today it's the bride and her shepherd. It's corporate application. Imagine this church leaving this place and walking paths of righteousness. What do those paths of righteousness look like? The image that came to my mind was, you know, dusty, worn paths that go into the valley. But it's better than that. Jesus said in John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John goes on to say, of this he was speaking of the Holy Spirit that had not yet been given because Christ had not yet ascended. In other words, we're now living in the age of the Spirit. Do you know what those paths of righteousness look like as we walk them together as God's people? As living, vibrant streams of living water. That dusty path turns into a rapid that's flowing where? Into the valley of the shadow of death. This is the call of the shepherd for his people. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Our shepherd is leading on all sorts of paths of righteousness in this community. He says in verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, the presence of Thy rod, the rod of protection, and thy staff, the staff of correction, they follow me. How do we bless God and 
renew our covenant vows in corporate worship. Today, with the Lord's Supper, is, it's the most visible expression of that. In verse 5, David says, Thou preparest a table before me in the midst of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. I asked the staff this last week, are you a glass half full person or are you a glass half empty person? How about you? Are you a glass half full person? A little bit more optimistic? A little bit more hopeful? Or glass half empty? Kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. A little bit skeptical. You know, the glass half full people accuse the glass half empty people of being grumpy. And the glass half empty people accuse the glass half full people of being naive. Right? What does David say? He says to each of God's people, your glass is full. It's full. Our culture has given us the glass half empty, glass half full metaphor. That's not biblical. And I, as I thought of that, I realized I, I am a glass half full person. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. But underneath, I was saying, God, there's more room. You could bless me more. Where's the other half? But I put on the optimistic face of, hey, things are going to get better. The glass half empty person. What are they saying underneath? God, you're holding out on me. You're not all that trustworthy. Life is unpredictable. Grumpy. Grumpy with a smile. <laughs> Beloved, you may not like your glass. You may think there are other things you'd prefer in your glass. Less of this, more of that. But beloved, in Christ, your cup is full. In fact, it's more than that. It's, it's overflowing. It's overflowing. God in his wisdom has given you everything you need for godliness in this life. Your cup, as your soul is renewed, as you come to the shepherd and as you drink of the, the quiet waters and you rest in him, he makes me lie down. As your soul is renewed through corporate worship, we're able to say by faith, God, my, my cup is, is overflowing. We, we have a saying in our family, I'm sipping from the saucer because the cup is overflowing. But we're only able to say that because we're not looking at our circumstances, we're looking at the Lord's generosity. How do we bless God and renew our covenant vows? David could not possibly have grasped the significance of his words when he said, Thou preparest a table before me in the midst of my enemies. He had no, he, had, he didn't have a clear idea who the son of David would be and what it would take for the son of David, the true son of David, to set that table. His son, Solomon, built the temple. 
right? And the temple was designed by God to be a microcosm of the universe. I don't know if you know that. Just the dimensions of the temple, the original temple, it was seen as a microcosm of the whole universe. And at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, to teach God's people that at the center of the universe is the presence of God. What was at the center of the center of the universe in this microcosm? What was at the center of the Holy of Holies? The mercy seat, where once a year the priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of the innocent lamb on the mercy seat. What was God teaching his people? What is he teaching us? At the heart of the universe is a seat. It's not a love seat. It's a mercy seat because of his love. The mercy seat of God is at the center of the universe. And all of us are born, because of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, we're all born with the the motto, your life for my life. Your life for my life. Your life for my entertainment. Your life for my gain. People whose souls are dead are not blessing, they're trying to steal the blessing from other people. Your life for my life, right? It's part of what makes Mother's Day so sweet for so many of us. Because on the human level, for many of us, our mom was the person who said, my life for your life, right? I, I, I'll sacrifice for you. I'll sacrifice physically and emotionally and time-wise. In fact, for many of us, we honor our moms today because, first of all, our moms were hurt for us. They were harmed for us physically, that we might have life. Secondly, they hurt with us. Chris referenced it, the, the, the comfort, the, the presence, the, the compassion oftentimes comes, came from a mother. So our, our moms were hurt or harmed for us. They were hurt with us, and sometimes they were hurt by us. Sometimes mom was the easier one to lash out at. Hurt for, with, and by. And I would say to our youth particularly, uh, you know, you may need you may owe your mom an apology. That might be the appropriate gift for Mother's Day, to realize that that we can be hurtful to the person who has been so sacrificial for us. I I said that off the cuff years ago, and a young mom came up to me. She She had three ornery boys, And she said, thank you, Tim. The orneriest looked up at me before we sang the final song. I said, Mom, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As great an example for us, so many of our moms are, we continue on our own to live your life for my life, your life for my life. And along comes Jesus Christ who says, my life for your life. 
Only Jesus Christ could fully make that sacrifice. My life for your life. This is the one that you've been looking for your entire life. A person who is self-sacrificial for you. So what, what's at the center of the center of the universe? The mercy seat. It's the lifeblood of Christ shed on the mercy seat of God that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored, reconciled to God, that our souls might come alive and bless God and be blessed by God and make vows to Him that even when we fall short of them, He says, I'm going to do you good with all my heart and with all my soul. What a God. This is the one who prepares the table for us today. The shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. God came to Adam and Eve and said, obey me and live, and they didn't. God comes to us and says, obey me and live. Love God, love your neighbor, and we don't. God came to his son and he said, son, obey me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Fulfill the law and I will crush you. I will turn my back against you. I will pour out my wrath upon you, and I will send you to hell. And Jesus said, okay, my life for the undeserving, my life that they may live This is the one who offers to restore our souls. And when our souls are restored, what happens to the bride, the church? When our souls are restored, we bless God and are blessed by God. We say with the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And we hear him say, behold, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. The very Words applied to Jesus are now applied to the bride through Jesus. When our souls are restored, we renew our covenant vows with Him. We say to one another, let us seek the Lord together with all our hearts and with all our souls. And we hear Him say to us, His bride, I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. Today we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The table that David spoke of is the table of David's son, Jesus Christ. Today we gather at the table because Jesus Christ said, my life for your life. Let's prepare to meet the Lord at his table. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were harmed for us. That as we endure hardship and suffering, you are harmed with us. And Lord, we readily acknowledge that you were harmed by us.
Meet with us at your table. Serve the bread and the cup to us. Strengthen our faith that we might renew our vows to be the people of God, the people whom God has committed to do us good with all his heart and all his soul. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.